Last week, Japanese scientists placed explosive detonators at the bottom of Lake Loch Ness to blow Nessie out of the water. <laughs> Sir Court Godfrey of the Nessie Alliance summoned the help of Scotland's local wizards to cast a protective spell over the lake and its local residents and all those who seek for the peaceful existence of our underwater ally. As far back as educated men have recorded their history, veils have been lowered to disclose a vast new reality, rents in the fabric of man's awareness. And somewhere in the endless search of the curious mind lies the next vision, the next key to his infinite capacity. everybody what's up welcome back i really gotta find another way to start this damn show off. yeah you do it's the same damn lines every time mm-hmm. we start the show number one i'm freezing um because the house is drafty um and we had we we have snow we we finally got snow up in michigan so here's me outside with my snowblower blowing snow today um <laughs> and i'm getting tired blah 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 but we've already recorded the show so that's the good part of it but yep. um we got Andy McGrath back on here from Beasts of Britain. It's been Andy! a year and three months since Andy's been on here. I believe. Right around that, yep. Mm-hmm. Something like that. And Andy's like, he's from the other side of the pond. He lives in London. And he's. we, we started recording the show at 7 o'clock, so for him it's midnight. And every time we have him on, it's always like super late at night. He's always very, always very accommodating and like super stoked to come on here. He loves coming on here. So we had him back on to talk about what he's been up to and what he's been researching and everything, because he's been a busy guy. And we pretty much go all over the map. We briefly talk politics. It's more of a comparison about, you know, what's going on in America and what's going on overseas and cultural differences about him being held up at the airport, which is a pretty funny story. (laughs) He's never had to deal with our TSA. Uh-oh. But um, we talk more about um, British werewolf sightings. Uh, I think we talk a little bit about what would you, what did you ask him about the the jelly squid, jelly squid at the something yeah, like that. Did. Yeah. Um, yep. just you know, just different stuff like what he's been up to and stuff, and you know his his research on Nessie and things like that. But uh, you know, that's pretty much it. Just catching up with him, and then at one point we he actually just dropped out of the call out of nowhere. So I'm gonna have to do some kind of clever editing to get that back up to par or whatever, what have you. But, um, you know, essentially that's it. So uh, <sighs> I'm tired and we're going to roll with the interview. <laughs> we'll see you guys. We will see you guys at the other side. Whee! So welcome back. This week we have returning guest Andy McGrath. It's been over a year since you've been with us, and uh, you are well. You it's it's a show, right? Beasts of Britain is a television show, a book, it, um, everything. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's whatever I I can make it. Actually, it's a book. It's definitely a book that's been out since 2017. Mm -hmm. And there's a a second edition coming out at um, uh, sort of mid-February, especially the end of this month, but mid-February. I've added lots of new chapters, lots of new research, some new photos, and it's got all new artwork as well. 
by Britt Manning. She's a great, fantastic, like witchy woo kind of artist. And she's done me a piece of Britain map, which is coming out in, in, in February. And also the individual creatures she's drawn up for the book. And that they're going to be replacing what I've got in there at the moment. And it'll be a lot cheaper too. So that's, you know, that's a big thing for me. Sort of get the price down, get some new graphics and especially lots of new chapters in there. So uh, that's that's one thing. The TV show, I've done a pilot for it. That was something I did in April last year in Lake Windermere, in the north of England, which is the home of Bonessie, which is a Nessie-like, pleasure-so-like lake monster that lives there. I still haven't sold it, but I'm, I'm still pitching it. I've had some nice meetings, and I've had some nice kind of, oh, you know, that's kind of interesting, but we'd rather see something like that than make it you know, I think there's an embarrassment factor to be into cryptozoology. Ghosts, fine, you know. Yeah. Talk about werewolves to the cows come home and, and orbs and, you know, funny feelings in night vision cameras in basements. They don't mind that. That's very believable. Unknown animals, on the other hand, <laughs> it's a big thing. So it's that's still, it's a head scratcher and it's still going. But I've got a, I've got a few interesting things coming up. I don't want to really put too much on them because. Like all of these meetings, if nothing comes of it, then it's an overextension. So it's not a TV show, but it's meant to be. Um, and then I've been to your beautiful country in September. Sorry. Of last year. I was in the US in Sorry. September last year. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I said beautiful. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, things are crazy over here, but I guess no more crazy over here than in your country, though. So oh, no. We're, definitely we're, crazy. We're, yeah. But <laughs> Yeah, we're we're facing very similar problems in a lot of ways, but uh, it's strange. Like yeah, being completely socially re-engineered by the sounds of it at the moment. Um, uh, but yeah, that's happening here too. You're right, it's happening mm -hmm. here as well to some degree. Um, you know, I I go through this sort of love hate relationship with your with your president, where sometimes I'm just like, I so badass, I love him. My friend, and try living time, here. Just like, oh my God, crazy. Try living here. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I mean, but and just for all your listeners, I don't have any particular pro or for or against opinions. He's not my leader. He's yours. And um, you know, I've got my own issues on my own. Teresa treason, as we're calling her at the moment. Treason. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, heard other words used for, but oh, that's fine. Yeah, yeah Teresa treason. <laughs> And it's very, you know, while well, I, I do really give to the English or the British English ruler, so let's call them the English, is that they're very sophisticated about the way they cheat you. So it looks like we probably won't have a Brexit. And, you know, just very cynically running down the clock and saying, well, it's my deal or no deal. Um, huh. Not to mention the fact we're just supposed to leave no matter what happens. It's a funny thing. So most of us at the moment feel that there will be no Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn from the Labour Party, you know, a very renowned uh, friend of terrorists and anti-Semite, will probably be our prime minister by the middle of next year by the looks of it. So <laughs> wow. it's an interesting time. Um, well, it could be worse. You could be in France right now and dodging flames. So <laughs> Akron. Akron. I mean, he's, he's a real Napoleon, isn't he? Um, yeah. So there you go. I'm not a political person, by the way. Don't really care. Yeah, we try to avoid but, um, it as well. Yeah, don't care at all. Don't care. Uh, because it's it's not up to me. That's my choice. I, I'm, I place my vote and then my job is done. So, yeah, so I've been doing all of that. I came to the U.S. and I had a great time. I went to uh, Portland, Maine. 
uh, New Hampshire. I was in Vermont uh, looking for a champ at Lake Champlain for a week. And then um, I headed down to uh, Kentucky for the CryptidCon conference. So in, in Portland, Maine, I was with Lauren Coleman and Jeff Meldrum and Todd Dissertel and a bunch of guys there, great researchers, and I got to speak at their event, uh, International Cryptozoology uh, Conference. And then in Kentucky, I got to speak with Bobo and Cliff and Nick uh, Groff and David Polides and all these great guys, Linda um Oh gosh, Linda. Godfrey. Fulton Howe. Gosh, Linda Godfrey. Sorry, Linda. Godfrey. <laughs> Linda's a sweetheart. No, She's been I on here a couple of name. times. Oh, she's amazing. I, I know her name for some reason. It just went. Um, I, I'm, I'm getting older, so that's that's my excuse. So I did that whole thing. I loved the United States. I was very freaked out about the airplane etiquette, that there was one. And hmm. uh, because we're not Well, used- you don't get searched and randomly like... Uh- Poked harassed getting on airplanes no no i i mean uh, we do and i'm not like um not like those those officers there but they, what they call them tsa, TSS. TSA officers. Yeah. um now we had a truly funny, shit uh, assistance yeah <laughs> well, i had a funny altercation with one of them and um because it was it was a cultural misunderstanding and it was about um british people's reluctance to answer anything in the affirmative you know or in the in the active voice <laughs> So um, I emptied all my pockets and everything out from my shirt and my trousers. And I went to that scanner you go into, we put your hands up. <laughs> and the officer said to me, do you have anything in your pockets? I said, no, I, I don't think so. And he said, well, do you or don't you? And I said, <laughs> no, I don't. He said, well, you didn't sound so sure a moment ago. And I said, no, I, I don't. <laughs> and he said, well, I mean, I, how can I be certain? And I said, I'll tell you how you can be certain. You're about to scam me, right? I said, so in about five seconds, you'll know if there's anything in my pockets. Let's go for it. <laughs> and uh, they pulled me out and they searched me rather thoroughly and briskly after that. And like Brisky. I say, I, yeah, yeah I kind of deserved guys. it. And once they once they finished their, their rough search, I thanked them for doing such a good job. I said that, that they should be, uh, should be enjoying the rest of the day. I said, well done, good job. You know, you're keeping us all safe. In a very non-sarcastic uh, voice, there is but nothing you can the... say to a TSA agent that isn't interpreted no. as sarcastic. You could say <laughs> hello, and they're like, "Are you threatening me? Step over here, sir." I know. I came I back know. from Vegas this year, and uh, <laughs> as we were coming back, uh, I was trying to be super polite, and the guy's like, "Is there anything in your?" He was asking me these questions: "Is there yeah. anything in your suitcase?" Blah blah. blah. And I said, "Not that I know of," and I should have just said no. But saying no. "not that I know of" implied doubt. And he stopped. He's like, sir, step over here. And my wife looks at me and rolls her eyes. And I was like, oh, God. So I'm just sitting there cooperating as completely as possible. You know, yeah. and the guy's got the purple gloves on that you can't be poked through and stuff. And he's searching through. He, like, rummaged through everything. And I was like, I'm going to get yeah. rubber gloved in the back room. And oh, God. I'm not going to have to pay for it. So, Sounds like a Saturday night. <laughs> yeah, <really. laughs> you did that on purpose. <laughs> uh, yeah, but no, they just they just searched my stuff and said, all right, go on okay. and get out of here. But after I thought about it, I was like, no, I should have just said no. Not not that I know of is, is very yeah. conversational, but implies guilt. And, you know, you're leaving from Vegas. So, of course, they're like, drugs, it's, drugs. Do you have weed? Is there yeah. anything in your suitcase? We're about oh. to find out, aren't we? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is the thing. I mean, they didn't tell me uh, going through, actually, that if I had padlocks in my suitcase that they would cut them. I didn't know that. Oh. So yeah. when I, I arrived in Florida because it was a storm, so my flight was desert, uh, di- um, diverted, and I had to, had to stay overnight in Florida, which was great. Actually. It was really nice. And... um 
so I arrived there. That was fine. No issue. That was the British Airways flight. I got off. The people, the immigration were really nice. I, I went through and I, you know, I got to the hotel. Um, and then when I went back to the airport, you know, to go to, or I think it was Atlanta next, some sort of change. That's when Atlanta is a nice airport, actually. But it, that's when things started to get a bit funny. They cut my, you know, they cut my um, padlocks because I wasn't supposed to have it padlocked, apparently, without an official TSA style, you know, uh-huh. padlock. I didn't know anything about that. Assholes. Yeah, and they're fine. They were just, you know, doing their job. Now, I, I travel to Israel once a year, so I'm used to some severe security. But it's different <clears> with <throat> those guys. They actually find out who you are, they do the job. You know, they go to Interpol. They oh, you they mean they're not they're... untrained dick bags? Is that what you're no. saying? <laughs> it can be a bit, a bit. They can be a bit. Um, Man, we're gonna get so uh, much hate mail from this. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I mean, listen. If you're in the TSA, um, America's a big. No, not from not you... from you. From what we're saying. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, I'll say it right now. If you work for TSA, <laughs> go get a be a cop. <laughs> oh come on! They're going through their own troubles right now. They, oh, so. they are. They are. So it's all fine. So you know, it, I'm used to that kind of security. I cooperate. I, my main focus is this: that there's no bomb on the plane, and if you've got to check me severely to make sure that happens, and everybody else, that's cool with me. If I get on that plane and it doesn't blow up, it's fine. Mm-hmm. That's my opinion on it. Um, so yeah, you know, long story short, the the American trip was really nice. And I, my first time in the U.S., and I really enjoyed it and loved the people, especially their weird, freakish. Uh, waiting for everybody in front of them on the plane to get off before they leave. That's insane. <laughs> what, what do you? What do you mean? Like what, what were you? What did you mean? Well, everybody on the plane in all the destinations I went to inside America, when the plane landed, everybody got off, uh, got up, and waited for the people in front of them to get their bag and get off the plane before they left. Uh-huh. That's a rarity. That's a rarity. That doesn't happen. So how does no, it happen in your country? Everybody just kind of gets up just and runs to the get door. Get your bag and get off as fast as you can. Um, if you're flying to Israel, which I do once a year, they're getting their bags out as it's landing. You know, um, <laughs> wow. I'm probably wow, kidding. That's ambitious. That's wow. not a joke. That's not a joke. And then people, as it's going down the runway, you know, there's people starting to go into the aisles and move towards on the LL anyway, LL flights. Starting to move towards the doors, wow. they can't stop them. They just, well, look, we're on the we're on the ground, you know. That's wow. cool. Let's just get up, and well, I'm not keeping my seatbelt on, you know. <laughs> so, since um, I gotta ask this, because you you do yeah. a lot of stuff with uh, European and British cryptozoology, um, and now that you've been to America and you've met our people and you've been to our shows, yeah. do you see any kind of fundamental differences between how you guys do things on your side of the pond and how we do it over here? Besides the yeah. fact that you've got people like Bobo trying to bait Bigfoot with bacon. <laughs> that works. You no, know, it does. I'm sure it does. <laughs> um, there is a major difference, actually. There seems to be some kind of acceptance of the hunt over there, and the people involved in it, most of them anyway, are quite professional in the way they're looking, and that is that they're, they're well-equipped. They, you know, they're investigating things properly. They're putting time and money and effort into it. And there's people in the background, fans or followers, who are willing to support that. That's not the case here at all. It's completely fringe. And in fact, most interests in the UK are either paranormal or Fortean. And the cryptozoological side of things is quite looked down upon. Even in Loch Ness, some of the guys who've been there for five decades kind of laughingly snub anybody who thinks it actually is a monster. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, it's kind of their profession, but they're not 
believers, and I think it's it's a very British thing. You're not allowed to say I think this does exist because of X, Y, and Z, because it somehow implies that you're a fool. You can investigate it as long as you don't believe it's real. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. We just don't want to commit, basically. We don't want to commit, and we think it's foolish to think such things. You know, I've we had a, a guest on here a little while ago. Her name was Ines, and she was from France. And she was talking wow. about how over in France that people there, if you talk about the paranormal or if you say you've seen a UFO or some kind of cryptid, that you're thought of as a nut job. Like, it's just yeah, yeah. something that's not socially accepted in France to talk about these kind of things outside of, like, uh, silly ghost stories or something like that. But it, yeah. she was like, if I tell people that I'm seriously researching this stuff over here, she goes, I, I could be put into a loony bin, you know? <laughs> well, I was like, I mean, wow. That, I mean, that's, yeah, that's the mm. French. I mean, maybe the Germans are the same. They're a lot more clinical. So a lot of the German researchers I know are a lot more... Prussian about things and they're very over articulate the search and they're really into the, the detail and the science of it the French they're more into the paranormal side of things I, I would imagine um, mm. that's kind of their bag a bit more the British again paranormal uh, lots of ghost hunting lots of psychic conferences lots of UFO things that's all fine but as soon as you say you know I think there might be some undiscovered creatures up in our lakes on our lochs and and perhaps a few weird ones out in the forests and, uh, you know, in the, the masses of land we have that's unpopulated. And we have a lot of, I mean, I think it's 10.6% of the, um, no, sorry, 9.8% of the entire country is urban sprawl. So everything else is is land, some populated land. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And that's 65 million people. You know, don't forget that. So, that, I mean, most of them, uh, you know, live in those, um, in those city settlements. So, it's just something that's not entertained. We don't think of ourselves that way, and we're not. Uh, you know, we 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 discovered many of those species in the nineteenth century that are now catalogued, you know, uh, around the world. And to think that we didn't discover things that might be living in our own country is just beyond beyond uh, comprehension. Of course not. You know, this is a well explored and discovered country. There could be nothing here whatsoever. But when you go to Loch Ness, and I was there again recently, again, to investigate a local sighting. And the most populated village along Loch Ness, which is Fort Augustus, which only has 600 people living in it, once it gets dark, and you'll see the videos on my, my Facebook page, once it get, on my YouTube page, once it gets dark, it is black. You cannot see anything. And the entire countryside is that. It is like that around there. There's... Um, you know, most of the roads don't skirt along the lock. It's just the odd light here or there. That's it. And this is in a very big tourist area. This you know, a lot of tourists here every year. And yet, after dark, total blackness. You can't see anything. Anything could be out there. And I stood right on the edge of the lock, as I like to do, in the blackness. And said, okay, if there's something five meters away from you now, two meters, ten feet, can you see it? No. You can't even see yourself. You know, it's, huh. um, so that's that's the thing people don't think about. It's not like going to some um, a, a big resort in the U.S. or, or somewhere else where they, there's lots of tourism there and there's lots of hotels lighting up the lock. It's a very pristine place, Loch Ness, and most of the hotels are very unobtrusive. Hmm. Let me ask you about uh, 
Camberwell, because last time you were on mm-hmm. the show, we were talking about werewolves, and it seems since then yeah. that you've gone full circle. It seems like every time, like every year around Christmas or something like that, you come out with a flurry of reports of werewolves and dogmen and things like that over in, in your part of the world. Oh. Um, interestingly, you do have Bigfoot over there as well, but I'm interested yeah. in this werewolf of Camberwell. Woodwolves. Okay, I mean, this is a report I picked up, and it wasn't that the way of Campbell. It's not originally my report. That may have come via Linda originally. I don't actually know now. It came to me through Deborah Hatswell uh, from her map, and um, it, it's a well-established story. 1996 in October, there's uh, there's a man on route to see a friend. And he's, he's in Camberwell. Now, in Camberwell, there's two cemeteries. There's Camberwell Old Cemetery, which goes back to the, um, I think it's 1856. That was originally built. Holds 300,000 bodies. And it's very old and it's very overgrown. And, you know, even lots of the gravestones, the forest is encroaching upon them and covering them. They're very old and overgrown. And there's Camberwell New Cemetery, which is nearby. And also in the surrounding area, you've got Crystal Palace Park, which is this huge park and stretches on for acres and acres, uh, Wells Park, One Tree Hill, and Cater Park. So there's lots of greenery around. A lot of people don't think about that when they think about London. So there's green corridors, as we call them, routes to move in and out of these these areas. And it, so back to the story, a man in 1996, he's en route to see a friend at night. It's October the 9th. He's, he takes a shortcut through this Camberwell Old Cemetery, which I, I went to recently to save time, something really strong grabs him, smashes him into the ground, and he sees a large creature with dark fur and a head like a German shepherd looking directly at him, slobbering and growling and sniffing his body up and down. And then, just as quickly as the attack starts, it, it runs off at its hind legs. And you may remember from the last time I told you this, the witness believes he was spared because he suffers from a disease that dogs can smell. Hmm. So that's, you know, that's... When I'm looking at witness reports, I'm looking at believability. I always look for these unnecessary, mundane details that the witness can't forget because you know the, the experience is bored into their mind forever. Mm-hmm. But we don't really need to know. We don't need to know that he's spared because he's got a disease that, that dogs can smell. That that smacks of some some realness, doesn't it? That somebody would mention something like that. And then I published um, when I went to visit the cemetery. I sort of put this on my page with the pictures it was a very uncomfortable place to be it was very creepy and Camberwell's not a great area anyway so it was a bit <laughs> it was, there had been like a mass stabbing there i think about two three months before um, oh yeah one. that's right i remember yeah, that. yeah 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 so yeah there was several guys with their sort of innards hanging out on the street and we've got this big eye problem at the moment so there was i was aware the area was a parts of it were a bit dodgy so it's just kind of careful you know i went there in the daytime and so I, I published this, and the lady got in contact with me, an Irish lady. She said, look, I, I used to live just by the cemetery, and I had this experience passing the cemetery with a friend in, in 2004 or five in the summer, 11.30 at night. We're walking up some, something called Underhill Road on the cemetery side of the road, and on the corner of the cemetery, we hear a really loud, weird noise, and both and this large tree in the corner of the cemetery has been shaken incredibly hard something really powerful is shaking it with all its might um and i you know for all the listeners out there may not be aware of this we don't have any bears in this country we don't have anything of that size that can shake a tree no animal 
and um, she hears this strange, low kind of growl. You know, she feels very, she feels very unusual uh, and terrifying. You know, they head off away from the the area. Her and a friend. Of she says they 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 took to their heels and fled as fast as they possibly could um, in different directions. Uh, so they actually split up and ran away, um, and they felt sheer terror. They instinctively knew that they had to get uh, as far away from this you know, flimsy fence, the cemetery, as fast as they could. And since that time, she's avoided the area, completely avoided it, never went back to that, that particular spot. That's a strange thing. You know, if you're just a person that knows nothing about this, and you pass a place and you see this tree shaking, you'd be more curious, wouldn't you, if you didn't know anything about these sightings. Oh, why is that tree shaking? That's a bit strange. Mm-hmm. Um, not I feel terrified by that. Let's run away. So it was a you know it's a big experience for her. Is there were sightings in the area? There's something that looked like a a wild man type sighting, a uh, big hairy creature that was sighted by some teenagers you know, drinking in the park at night. Uh, one of them went off to take a, a pee. This is called Cater Park. This area uh, saw one of the security lights come on from one of the local houses and. This huge creature was running towards him. He said he's 6'3", six, 6'4", six, and it dwarfed him. It was huge. It was hairy. It smelled bad. And he ran back to his friends, and then all of the friends saw it running across the park uh, in, in the night together, this huge, hairy creature. So there's weird sightings around this area. It's green. You know, it's very, it's very um, concealed after dark. So it's interesting, you know. Could there be werewolves? Did he see a bipedal dog man? That's what we call it now, don't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't know. It's, yeah. It's it's that's become the term for it. Well, Linda was was uh, she was the original dog man person. You know, was she, she was. Well, she was uh-huh. she was the one that wrote the Beast of Bray Road. So she kind yeah. of uh, I I think I'm not positive, but I think she was the one that coined the term dog man. If if I'm not mistaken, uh, no, I think that was coined by. Uh, that was coined by a uh, radio station. Oh, the one big. up here in Michigan, up in uh, yeah, yep. mid Michigan. That uh, that was that's that was proven to be fake though. That was uh, mm-hmm. shoot, I can't remember what the heck that was. I've been through that town actually within the last couple of years, um, and Linda proved that to be fake because there was that yep. video that came out. And uh, she found out later it was fake, and, and then uh, the extra footage got released of the guy walking around with the mask off oh, and all that yes. stuff. Okay, something okay. like that. Yeah, that was and funny this, because this, yeah. they wanted Linda to buy, the guy's like, come on, back me up on this. And Linda's like, no, you're full of shit. I ain't backing you up on nothing. <laughs> you know? <laughs> she talked well, like about that in her show. It would be in her interest to back him up, right? No, but she, you know what? That's one of the reasons genius. I like yeah, the yeah. lady because she's got a lot of, you know, she's she's like, no, I'm not going to back this. This is this yeah. is garbage. And, you know, she doesn't, she she's just there to tell the stories and stuff like that. But if she sells, smells a rat, she's not going to involve herself with it. So. <clears throat> I'm the same. I, I I like to be as cautious as possible. I, I always give the witness the benefit of the doubt, but I don't I don't say this is right, this is true, this is real. As I say, I always look for the before I look for these these mundane details in the telling of the story. Because I think when you have an experience like that, it's a trauma and a trauma is like a it's a moment captured in time. You remember every single detail. You know, you can't forget almost sometimes these little things, you know, they say, well, I noticed that that street lamp was broken and, and that never happened before. I don't need to know about the street lamp. I don't need to know that, you know, there was a car with a light on. 
doesn't matter. But those are the details the witness can't forget when they're telling, when they're retelling something that's that's really affected them. Um, so that's really interesting. I, you know, when you look at the the history of the UK, the folklore, there's lots of werewolf tales. Europe too, it's the same. Mm-hmm. They go back, you know, they go back hundreds and hundreds of years. It's the same with the wild man, with the woodworms, or British. Mm-hmm. People. And we've got um, we've got carvings of them on our churches and on our medieval tapestries. And they just like look like large hairy men. Um, it, it goes on forever and ever. They they seem to have always been in our folklore. It doesn't mean they're real, but it means that people believed in them in ages past as well. I was speaking with somebody recently on a show. I don't remember if it was ours or I was a guest on somebody else's show, but I brought up the topic of the green man and Mm. how big of a thing that is in your country and how a lot of times people in America will look over and they'll see like a, like a depiction of the green man. They go, Oh yeah, that's, that's Bigfoot or something like that. Yeah. Um, but that's very much ingrained in your country then that to the point where yeah. it was so ingrained that when Christianity came through, Christianity couldn't even beat it out of, out of the Europeans. They were like, you know what? We'll, we'll no. pray to Jesus and God for our spiritual needs. But the green man is what provides for our physical sustenance or something along those Wait, lines. Yeah. I mean, you have to remember as well that um, in Britain, that the, the pagan festivals, they still continue to this day, mm-hmm. but it was the 15th, 16th century when there was still, the church was still, um, substituting a lot of these pagan festivals for church festivals, even as late as that time, 15th, 16th century. He said, uh, I did religion for my degree, actually. It was this great book called um, Religion and the Decline of Magic that we had to read. It was about this, about how, you know, the, the pagan well of the so-and-so spirit turned into, you know, the well of St. Clotho or St. Bernadette or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, um, we, Christmas and Easter are classic examples. Yeah, Easter is the festival of Ishtar, um, mm-hmm. Easter, which is the fertility goddess, and um, Christmas. We still call it Yule Tide. It's it's the festival of Yule, Saturnalia. You know the um, the pagan god Yule or the Roman god Saturn, and it's a, it's like a it's a big um, festival of drinking and eating, and you have this tree because that's a representation of the branch, which was this pagan messiah uh, Tammuz originally who is prophesied to come back in in the Egyptian tales and in the Babylonian ones, and it filters all the way down to these Celtic um, uh, Teuton pagan gods. They're the same individuals, actually. And we have this branch to celebrate that he was the branch, you know, that was to come again. So a very similar stories to Christianity, actually. But this mix is very strange. We eat something here called a Yule log, which is a chocolate branch, by the looks of it. Um, so they're celebrated everywhere. All of these things, we, we just took them and said, okay, well, you know, Easter is kind of close to when Christ was crucified because that was near the Passover. And so sometimes they cross over. So that will be, you know, that will be the resurrection day now. And Yule Tide. <laughs> Did you see that article that went up recently where I guess a couple of people were in the park walking their dog or something? They came up on a group of pagans that were having a ritual and having sex or something like that. Have you With seen birds that? and blood? Oh, you haven't seen that? 
No, is that in England? Yeah, shoot. I wish I, I, I need to find it and send it to you. And oh. it was like, I guess this woman, they walk up on these people and there, there's these people <laughs> in a circle. They were chanting and these people were having sex with bird blood. How they knew it was bird well, blood, I don't know unless. Because there were a bunch of dead bird birds. There, I guess. Okay, I yeah. didn't know that. And then, uh, <laughs> yeah. so they, they took off and went and called the police or something like that. And then as they were walking back, they just saw the people casually walking out of the woods. Like, oh yeah, you know, no no big deal. You know, this is yeah. what we do. And yeah, uh, a lot of strange things going on actually and in the countryside especially and I, I'm there's all these claims of all these different covens and different um, sects of whatever um, sex acts <laughs> all over the place and <laughs> you just never know sometimes I hear the people walking into things not like that but you know sort of walking into strange gatherings and thinking and I've also heard of some hippie type festivals that seem to represent something very similar to that um, which I've obviously avoided. I think there's one that oh, happens every year. What's it called? I can't remember. I can't remember. It's like a big pagan festival. Apparently, whatever goes, goes. And the next day, you just leave it all behind. But that's, um, it's, not, it's not my bag, baby. It's not for me. <laughs> <laughs> you should go, man, purely for research no. purposes. You could be like the Hunter S. Thompson of that kind of stuff. You know, I just have to sign the divorce papers before I left the house. Well, I'm not saying go That's there and hilarious. participate. Just go there as an observer. Of course, oh, that no. sign the divorce papers. <laughs> Got to have a plan, man. Well, Got to have a plan. Bring the wife with you, then. I guess I don't no. know. Just be, no. He's like no, no. You don't understand. This is yeah, because that wouldn't be awkward at all. <laughs> no, I mean I don't think it was. Where this is like the most apart from the fact I was a musician. I was a musician, a singer for. I've been one now for 30 years this year uh, from age 12. My parents used to get us gigs at bike festivals from 12 onwards, cover band, Zeppelin and the Pistols and, and things like that, Guns N' Roses early, you know, appetite type Guns N' Roses back in the 80s. And we, we played bike festivals from age 12 upwards and carried on. And I only really stopped playing full time about two years ago, three years ago. And um, that was the most exciting thing about me, but as a musician, seeing the other musicians drink, drug, sex, and rock and roll, I'm completely straight-laced. I'm completely boring. In bed by 10, um, reading books. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I used to do techno music and go to raves and stuff, and they all called me ground control because I was the only guy that didn't get high. And That's right. You know, it, it's it's okay, but after a while, you get, you get kind of tired of, like, being up on stage and doing music and looking over and seeing, like, you've got all these people that are moving and grooving to what yeah. you're doing, and then you look over and there's a person next to the speaker who's high on ecstasy burning themselves with a cigarette, you know? Yes. And then you also get tired of going to events where you have to, like, bring your own drinks and, and bever you know, pop or soda yeah. or water oh, or whatever yeah, in a yeah, satchel on your yeah. side or a backpack and never let it leave you because you're afraid someone's going to put something in it. So I'm the same. I mean, do you know how hard it is to get a coffee at a bar? Yes, <laughs> I do actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, or a gig. I mean, I'm gigging for like years and years on end, and I get in, and you know, you always end up drinking Coca Cola. I don't like to drink that, but you know, that was what was going on there. That was what was available. I say, oh, maybe you have like a cappuccino or something. And oh, uh, no, uh, I mean, we could go back and make you a coffee, you know, a coffee and out back, like some instant in a cup and bring it back to you if you want. You're playing. And Who goes to a thing. bar and orders a cappuccino? I know. <laughs> Me. Me. <laughs> Me. And this is why my marrying a Middle Eastern girl is perfect because drinking is not really big in the Middle East. There's coffee bars everywhere. So when I arrived, I'm like, oh, this is a heaven. The coffee's good. The food is good. 
they, you know, it's hard to find somewhere to drink. It's perfect for me. But being from an Irish and English background and growing up in Wales, not drinking, for the, uh, well, not drinking full time for the last 10 years, and it was very sporadic before then, it was like an apostasy. You know, the joke is always that the reason that I live in England now is I was deported for not drinking. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to ask you this, since, since you go over to the Middle East all the time, when you're over there, are you ever searching for cryptid legends or strange happenings and things like that when you're, when you're in that part of the country? There's not a lot. Now, somebody has alerted me very recently to an investigation of uh, the Sea of Galilee in the 60s about an alleged lake monster in the Sea of Galilee. I can't imagine it because that's hmm. the only sighting anybody's ever talked about. There's not a lot of water over there. You know, you've got the River Jordan going in, coming out, and um, it's a big body of water, the Sea of Galilee. Don't get me wrong, but it's not it's not viable lake monster habitat. It's too dry. The fish stock isn't very reliable anymore. And we're talking about people fishing. They go there all the time. We're talking about one sighting in all this time, which I think could be like a very big catfish or something like that. They have catfish in the country, turtles too. Um, I have heard there are some, allegedly some leopards in the desert, in the Negev. Um, I, I don't know what kind of leopards they are, actually. I've just heard a little bit about that from time to time. They have some nice native species. Occasionally get a crocodile you know, spotted, but it's very, very rare that they get up that far. And it's it's a dry land. It's not good cryptid land, basically. Most of the Middle East is like that, I think. Yeah, because you never hear any kind of cryptid stories. The only thing you hear coming out of the Middle East is sometimes occasional UFO sightings or something like that. Yeah. And that's really yeah. about it. You don't hear, I mean, I think the most fantastical one is probably like the Mongolian death worm kind of things or mm. something like that. You know, and that's really about it. There's no, or stories of Dijin, but, you know, that's yeah. part of their culture. But that's really sure, about it. So. Do they, do they react strange to you over there when you tell them, yeah, I researched this kind of stuff? Uh, I don't talk about it that much, actually. Kind of keep it hush-hush, hush, eh? Yeah, the family know, and some of the nephews and nieces, they kind of think it's uh, it's fun, it's cool. And um, and actually, my in-laws think it's very cool. They like it. They're in their 70s, and they think it's really interesting. Um, but even over here, I mean, in our neighborhood here in Surrey, you know, it's all everybody's like bankers and accountants and lawyers and whatnot and it's not generally the topic of conversation at the school gate yeah because i want the kids to play with my kid yeah <laughs> 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 that's awesome <laughs> yeah but i think it would be very different so if i am i and i'm not yeah i do have some interesting meetings if you if i do manage to sell the tv show and and this is the last year i'll try to sell it because if it's not going to happen i just I'll just leave it behind. But um, I think that would be different because if it's sort of networked and it's going out and people are watching it, then they'd be like, oh, that's really cool because you're being successful at something other than you're some weirdy sort of grown-up boy in his 40s looking for Bigfoot um, in the forest, <laughs> which essentially you can't blame them for thinking that I'd be a bit tapped to be doing that. Um, tapped meaning mental. But um it's just one of those things. That's how it is over here. People, you know, I should be, I shouldn't be married or have kids. I should be alone in some, some one bedroom flat somewhere, you know, on my computer. Um, 
forums all night long because that's you know, mentally that's how, how they imagine that kind of person would would look um wouldn't be some ex nearly rock star who, but at who the same time never, though you was like in my experiences over here with people that i've dealt with it's it's starting to change over the years but initially it was like so you're one of those guys that's really into this freaky stuff huh and i'm like well yeah, yeah i'm interested in it you know and that's like one of the things about our show. What's your show about? Well, you know, I'll say, yeah, we cover this and we cover that and blah, blah, blah. And I'll say sometimes we cover paranormal. I could say 15 other things, but as soon as I say, yeah, we cover paranormal sometimes, that's what they mm-hmm. focus in on. Yeah. So they'll, they'll laugh at you at first, and then you always have people that come up and say, hey, um, let me tell you a story. Like everybody's got Sash. a story. So Everybody you kind has of, the ghostly story. Yeah, but they'll they'll laugh at you at first, and then afterwards they'll be like, "Hey, can I can I tell you something that happened to me, or can I tell you something that happened to my cousin, or or something like that?" And you're like, "Yeah, sure, you know, go ahead, tell me your story. I'll I'll listen to it." And then they ask you after they tell you the story, they're like, "So what was it?" And I'll be like, "I don't know, you know." And then they get mad when you say that, <laughs> like like you're supposed to be the expert or something like that, you know. But um. So I would imagine it's probably the same way with you. Do you have people, now that you're becoming known for this kind of stuff, I would imagine, do you have people that come and tell you stories and, and tell you things that they've seen and stuff like that? Do you have to hunt it's, very far for yeah. this stuff? Uh, no, it's mostly online. I mean, before um, before recent times, I got most of my information from other researchers I was in touch with and said, okay, well, look, I've got this many sightings in this area and these many people have given me permission to share their sightings with you for your research and good relationships have actually really helped all the way through. Uh, but now people are starting to email me. Now I do get quite a lot of, I've got quite a few um, Bigfoot reports recently, uh, personal reports from individuals uh, in Texas and some other places. I had a Wahila report from an Indian reservation lady I was in contact with last year. Um, a, a what, a Wahila? Wahila. What's that? Uh, yeah. It's kind of like this, it's like a demon dog, like a big wolf-like creature, but huge, mm-hmm. like the size of a pony. Um, you've seen him before. Have I you? have? Well, you've seen him before depicted in drawing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Well, she, I know you have. Like a dire actually, wolf kind of thing? Huge uh, dire yeah, wolf. Huge, okay. huge. Five foot taller, she said at the shoulder. Now, she was on the reservation. She was driving through at night, and she said the thing crossed the road. And then she related another strange detail again, one you don't expect. She said, I felt really sorry for it because it was so painfully emaciated. I could see the ribs sticking out. And that interested me. And I thought, why would she, if she wants to fake a sighting to me and, and tell me that she's seen a wahili, why would she say it was really emaciated and looked like it was starving? That's a strange thing to add, isn't it? Well, some people can be clever and, and add those details. But I've never even heard of Wahila report before, personally. Uh, and that was the first time I've encountered the, uh, the name. I've had some strange unidentified clip, uh, flying cryptid sightings from Australia. And I'm talking to people literally all over the world constantly now and, and getting in touch with them about what they're, do- they're doing and asking people for sightings to continue the books because I'm, I'm writing Beasts of North America at the moment. I've got Beasts of Australia, Beasts of South America as well, um, lined up. And bit by bit as these sightings come in, I'm sort of like fitting them into sort of layouts of each book and putting them together um, slowly. So yeah, people are coming to me. In Britain, they mostly come to me with big cat sightings, to be honest with you. 
I saw a big cat. I saw a cougar. I saw a panther. Um, and yeah, but there's more and more videos that are coming out. And mostly, like paranormal videos, they, they don't mean anything to me anymore. When somebody puts a video of a, of a UFO, yeah. um, most of the Bigfoot Trump. ones, you know, a lot of them you can just go, that's that's garbage. You know, okay, mm. it's a UFO, it's a light in the sky, that could be anything. But the big cat videos have always fascinated me because it's it's not that it's kind of hard to fake a video of a big cat. It's just something very unusual when when you're doing something like that to make it look real is very difficult. Oh yeah. Like a UFO yeah. that's a light in the sky. You can move the camera around in the dark and make oh it's mm. look it's moving or something or focus it in and out. Look it's getting brighter and darker. But a cat, you know, granted yes, video technology and faking things is becoming easier and easier all the time. Yeah. But to just to fake a video of a cat running through the countryside, you know, you're yeah your country's getting more and more and more of those. And so, there's, good, there's good background to it as well. So we have the 1976 Dangerous Wild Animals Act that dictated uh, special keeping conditions that these animals was, was supposed to be kept in, you know, caged and licensed and all these different expensive things people had to do. I know of many stories, third-hand accounts, from people who knew people who let them go, who also mm-hmm. knew people who let breeding pairs go. Um, and this is, you know, this is 42 years ago, and um, they are seen nationwide, throughout the entirety of the nation, even close to where I am. Now, there's, there's the cat sightings everywhere, and they either look like like a melanistic leopard, like a, like a kind of panther, that, and it's either big, like panther size, or it's a bit smaller, like a, a kind of um, Labrador type size. Um but still of this, this panther kind of look, or the, the puma, as we call it here. I think you call it a cougar, don't you? Um, you know, this, this beige type of cat. Two very leopards and pumas, two very adept animals that surviving in our climate. And occasionally you get other sightings, things like servals, jungle cats. There's been tiger and lion sightings, but only a few. And you know, they're just widespread, but it's mainly it's these, what we would call panthers, melanistic leopards, and pumas nationwide and it's just it's a no-brainer so you think it's people that have had exotic pets that have just gotten loose or they've let them go in the countryside people have admitted it zoos have admitted years later that 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 they they had escapes that they didn't mention they just got out how do you not mention that as a zoo by the way there's a there's a dangerous creature on the loose and we just forgot to say something about it because you get caught with a huge fine yeah, we're talking about you know like uh, wildlife parks, let's say in, in very countryside like locations. Now, I was talking to somebody the other day who said, when they were growing up, actually um, there used to be a local farmer well, used to walk their puma on a lead, you know, back in mm-hmm. the seventies, and occasionally it'd be up the tree and it'd be really hard to get it down. A lot of people <laughs> like to keep them as as pets. I know in Ireland, they don't have a law like we have, and they have a real issue with big cat ownership, actually, especially in the the rural settings. So this came in for a reason. It wasn't just for big cats. You know, it was for anything, crocodiles, poisonous snakes, spiders, whatever was was deemed dangerous. At the moment now, you have to register with your local council to say, I have, you need a license. I have a cobra. You know, I have a black widow spider. Even I have a lion. You know, I'm breeding ostriches. Anything that could do damage to somebody, you have to register. And there's a, there's a, 
it's kept. You can actually check what people have and where it is. Mm-hmm. Well, we just had that, uh, wasn't that long ago, that cat, uh, not that cat, that guy in, where was it, Utah? No. He freaking let all of his wild animals out, and they had to wow. shoot almost all of them. That's terrible. And he freaking left food around him so that hopefully one of the cats would kill him. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it was bad. I just listened to a show on it. I mean, they, they there was a they, well, ja- no, they it they he killed himself. He shot himself through the mouth with a three fifty seven, I think. <sighs> and he had thrown chicken around it to try and draw the animals in so that they would eat his body. Okay. And Jack Hanna was involved in it, and that he said outright that there was no nothing else these these police officers could have done. I mean, there was a ton of animals. No, they sure. were loose. It was dangerous. I mean, they shot tigers, lions, bears. Oh, my. You know. Hmm? Nothing. Go oh, ahead. my. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, even here in Connecticut, when I worked at the pet store, uh, the guy that I worked for, he would bring in illegal animals. He had no qualm about bringing illegal animals in and just selling them to whoever was going to give them the highest price. He had a license to get them, but he sold them to anybody. He didn't care. Yeah. I mean, here now, it, it doesn't happen. And it's actually, it's very, very tough to get animals. Even things with like reptiles, like snakes and tortoises and certain crocodilians. Actually, I think we have a policy now that they have to be bred in captivity. Good. And all of the pet stores advertise bred in captivity, you know, for everything that you buy. You know, I used to keep pythons and snakes and things like that, different lizards and amphibians mm-hmm. when I was growing up. And, um, yeah. That's just just the way it is. It, to me, it's a no-brainer. People have filmed them. People have photographed them. We've got so much evidence. There's footprints. There's scat. There's sheep and deer kills. You know, we've got thirty something million sheep in this country. By the way, you've got five. Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, one point five million deer running through the country. There's thirty-three million, thirty-three point five million rabbits. There's good game and wild grass, and there's no natural big predators anywhere. It's a free-for-all. You know, there's just so much food for them out there. And that's one of my theories on why nobody's being attacked, really, either. You get enough to eat. Got enough to eat. They don't have to resort to attacking people. Even, you know, an old and injured leopard can catch a rabbit. Um, yeah, absolutely. And actually, I spoke to a farmer in Yorkshire uh, about three months ago. He'd seen, uh, he was baling hay with his tractor. He was getting all of the hay baled up in his field. He said the field's really pocked with lots of rabbit warrens and holes. And he said suddenly alongside him, he sees this panther, as he called it, go past. Again, very low. He said maybe only about three and a half feet long, um, low to the ground, maybe two feet high. And it was slinking and it walked straight past his tractor. He could have put out his hand and touched it. It was unconcerned by him, not concerned at all. And it was after these rabbits in these in these warrens. And then uh, at a later date, near a friend's farm, he saw what he assumed was a male and female coming in and out of a hedge near the roadside. So, you know, breeding pairs. I know other people have seen cubs. You know, they've seen adults with cubs. It's just constant. Every year we have 10, 15, 20 sightings. And they're always very legitimate sightings, usually. It's not why I saw, and you have these savannah cats now, don't you? These big sort of serval domestic breeds yeah like a serval with a, a domestic breed and they're very popular here at the moment as well but it's clear what that is it's not a tiger it's not a lion it's not a big puma or panther people are seeing 
really large cats all the time throughout the country. So it was in Ohio, Zanesville, Ohio, and the guy's name was Terry Thompson. Terry Thompson. Don't yeah. don't don't give anybody a rhyming name as bad for the no. psyche. <laughs> or three first names. Yeah, all three first names, exactly. Like Terry Terry. <laughs> or William Williams or something like that. Yeah, John bad, Johnson. bad, bad idea. John Johnson. Let me ask you about the Black County Stalker. If you remember Ooh. that one. Yes, I do. Okay. So this is, this is, this sighting is related to another sighting, um, but I, I reported actually. Now uh, there's a, a primate keeper here in the UK called Hal Smith. He's been keeping. Um, he's been a primate zookeeper uh, in the UK and around the world for near, I think, 37, 38 years now, and he had a Bigfoot sighting in Abernethy Forest in Strathspey, Scotland. Uh, 2012, I believe, and that set him on this path of searching for Bigfoot in the UK. So he was investigating some uh, some other sightings around the area, um, uh, around the area of the. I think it's somewhere in, in the um, middle country here. Let me just find out if you exactly actually. Okay. Yes, it's okay. So it's near, it's near Wolverhampton, I believe. Let's have a look. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So this was near Bagridge Count, uh, Country Park, uh, near Wolverhampton in England. It's an area known as the Black Country. That's what we, as how we refer to it. And um, he was up there investigating a, another sighting when he was walking through the, the forest there, the park, and. He passed an old gentleman um, who kind of looked at his T-shirt, and his T-shirt said, gone squatching, and he kind of walked on. Later, he popped into a local cafe to, to have a little food, and the guy approached him, and, um, and you know, he said, you know, do you believe it? Um, it's a very old man. And he said, yes, I investigate sightings. Then he told Hal he had something he wanted to discuss with him, but he wanted his wife to be present. So... They arrange another day uh, to meet at the cafe on a Thursday. He gets there, and they basically say they're walking their dogs through this uh, this um, this little forest near the village. Uh, it's in April 2017, um, and they've got their dog with them, their little dog, and it doesn't get on with other dogs. So they take this, you know, this um, quiet path, um, and they notice a dog figure in the trees around 30 feet away. It seems strange, like it's watching them from behind a tree and ducking away. <laughs> so he didn't say anything to his wife, this guy, and he, he doesn't want to alarm her. He keeps going. After around 10 minutes, you know, she notices he seems anxious and he tells her what's going on. You know, there's something behind the trees looking at this. So she spots it and it ducks behind the tree again, starts uh, peeping at them from around the corner. <clears throat> and um, they rush to get out of the place. And when they look back, they see this big, tall, dark, hairy figure basically standing at the edge of the forest looking at them. It's um, very, very creepy. And they were very, very upset by it too. So would the dog do? The dog just flip out? No. Um, just a second. I've got a cough. <laughs> it's okay. I can edit. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. So, um, 
No, it didn't. It didn't say that the dog got. Oh, it was barking and growling at it. They said, but I, I didn't say. It doesn't really say that it flipped out at, at the creature. You want to say barking and growling? That's like a defensive thing, anyway, for dogs, isn't it? They could do that for a human being. If some creepy guy was in the forest, sort of stalking, I think your dog would, you know, would act up as well in exactly the same way. I was just, you know, their description. They said it was dark in color and covered in hair. And they thought it was, she thought it was around eight feet tall, but the husband said it was closer to seven feet tall. So we're already outside of the range of, of human, uh, you know, of human proportions. Now, I think what's very, very interesting about it is that these are old people. They didn't have access to the internet. They were, they were outside of all of that. They weren't aware of this Bigfoot phenomena, just that they had this, in this um, strange sighting. Now, if Hal hadn't been there uh, investigating another sighting, which took place in a place called Shoal Lane in Lower Penn near Wolverhampton, which was a, a roadside sighting where a witness saw a man-shaped creature covered in shaggy orangey hair, around seven feet in height again, uh, built like an American football player. They always say that, don't they? Um, around that area, also in 2018, you know, he would never would have met this guy. They never would have come together. He wouldn't have seen his T-shirt with the gun squatch, and he wouldn't have opened up to him about it. And they just thought they were going mad, this old couple. Uh, they um, they didn't want to tell anybody in the village because, of course, you're crazy, aren't you? They've lived there their whole lives. So I think that's, that's to me, that's a very valid sighting. They've got no interest. They've got no knowledge. And yet they describe something outside of the realms of human proportions that's covered in hair. And that was tree picking, was stalking them through a forest. Very interesting. Huh. So have you noticed an increase in Bigfoot sightings since, or since you started digging into this stuff, was it bigger than you thought it was or yeah, are you seeing bigger. an increase? Yeah. Well, I, I'd say that the sightings coming, coming in are, some of them are historical. And so they're relating to things that happened a few years ago. And some of them are very recent, like this one, 2017. And the, the show Lane one we just talked about, which was 2018 in the same area. It does seem that now that people know there is somewhere to report them to, a few more reports are coming in. But judging by the, the uh, statistics of the British Bigfoot Research Group that received most of the sightings, I think it's, it's on average about two to three a month. Uh, and that's a mix of historical reports and, and recent reports. So I think it's becoming our publication of it, our publicizing of it, it's making it more common. Well, all that's resulting in is actually a safe place to report a sighting if you've had one. Hmm. All right. Well, I last a, time, go ahead. I, I got a bizarre question, and I don't know if we want to answer answer it now or wait until the end. But you have your little your little blurb on your page for Beasts of Britain. Oh yeah. At uh, beastsofbritainblogspot.com, and uh, it shows you know about me. And there's the normal stuff, you know, whether it be lake monsters, sea monsters, wood woes in parentheses or brackets of British Bigfoot, big cats, owl man, jelly squid. What uh, the fuck is a jelly squid? <laughs> <laughs> I have never seen that before. That I, I other stuff. I've I've heard tale of the owl man, heard tale of big cats, wood woes, been following for years. Sea monsters, lake monsters, known in the British Isles. Jelly squid, what is that? <laughs> it's that when the stars are right. <laughs> no, it's not Cthulhu. 
<laughs> okay, I mean, the Jelly Squid is actually one of the first things I, I ever, ever wrote about. Um, it's very interesting. So I had a guy contact me, and this was in central London as well. This is um, London Bridge. And uh, he contacted me. Um, when did that happen? Let me just bring it up here. I've got it on my blog, actually. So him and his brother, they were they were crossing uh, London Bridge in April 2014. And uh, London Bridge is very central, by the way. It's over the River Thames, but it's really, really busy. Day or night, there's always people there. It's where that terrorist attack was, actually, in, in um, uh, early 2018, you may remember, or 2017, I believe. So they were crossing the bridge, and they they look into the water. Suddenly, they see this grayish, featureless, and slightly elongated square kind of headed creature. What looks like lots of green tentacles or, or tassels at the bottom. It's around five feet long, thick as a man's body. Um, it's on the left side of the bridge, and they see it swimming against the current and uh, submerging and surfacing a, a few times. Um, they felt it had like a metallic mechanical feel to it, but it was definitely a biological creature. So I'm guessing they're describing like the color of the skin or, or whatever it was. Um, they're basically, oh, something's happening here. They're basically trying to um, take pictures of it, you know, and they they weren't able to uh, for some reason. And uh, or they weren't able to capture any good pictures of it anyway. And they said a crowd of people around them saw it. They saw it happening at the same time. So I think that's, you know, it's really, really strange. They saw this creature. They've never seen anything like it. And he described it like a jelly squid, which is, um, you know, it's a, like a, that's a strange thing to say, isn't it? But it had this squid-like body and this jellyfish-like tentacled um, legs. So I think that's um, it's a really strange so one. So, I mean, I, you cover ubas, which are out-of-place animals, which yes. I, I get that. And that, I mean, no matter how many times I read through that about me, I'm still, <laughs> I, I'm like, I don't, okay. I can wrap my head around almost anything. I've seen some very strange things in my life, corporeal and non-corporeal. But that, because I one of my main interests is oceanic and aquatic life so to see that i was like okay i have to ask this because that's like <laughs> it's not something you see i mean you'd expect to see there's been whales and there's been dolphins and seals and stuff that have been seen by london bridge throughout the centuries but a jelly squid that that stopped me dead in my tracks that computers are down houston we have a problem do not hang up on me <clears throat> We seem to be experimenting some technological differences. You were saying something, and then all of a sudden your microphone went, and you died, and you were gone. And I'm it like, turned off okay. completely, actually. And it's a, this computer doesn't warn you when the battery's out. Now, it's plugged. It's plugged in, actually. Um, yeah, you like, want to record a podcast. Get used to this kind of stuff. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> that has never happened before. Not once. Not ever. Yeah, actually. it's pleasure with us. We deal with stuff like this all the time. Yeah. You should Grow have your beard. Jelly squid. I told you not to mention the jelly squid. <laughs> <laughs> Under no circumstances must you mention the jelly squid. I want you not to mention it. You did it, you know. And um, 
Well, let's not talk about it too much. So, yeah, do you want to start back in on that bit again? Oh, I was going to ask you about Benny the Beluga Whale. Since he brought up the jelly squid, you were saying something to me yes. offline about Benny the Beluga. Okay. okay, so. I mean, it's not really a cryptid, but, no, where, you, but where you're seeing it at is kind of odd. Well, so I also cover in the book, and in my research, out-of-place animals, animals that we know about, we know that are real, but like the cats, are not supposed to be here. So one really great example of that recently is Benny the Beluga Whale, or Beluga Lou, as I've been calling her, just in case, because we don't know it's a boy. So, um, yeah, this is really, <laughs> really interesting. Really interesting. So, you know, there were, if you find these guys up in, you know, around Canada, around the Arctic, that's fine. But in the River Thames, this guy is 16, 17 foot, 17 foot long, Beluga Whale, living in the Thames estuary, in the River Thames, near Gravesend in Kent, and it's been there since, uh, I think, since July or August last year. It's thriving. Apparently, they're monitoring it. They're looking into how it's doing. Busy shipping lane. It's doing fine. It's having a great time. Plenty no of food. Problem. Yeah, plenty of food. And it's not leaving. It's just, it's living there. It's living there very happily. And it's been there for, you know, uh, God knows how long. I think it's uh, four or five months. Oh, end of July, early August, so, you know, nearly six months, and it's just not going. Now, we've had whales in the Thames before. We had a pilot whale come right up into the Thames uh, near London and, and get stuck, and a dolphin died there, I think, about a year and a half ago, and, and various other things. They normally get stranded. They get stuck. But this clever guy has stayed down in the estuary where it's nice and deep, and he's not too far from the sea, and he's just sticking around. So I went down to Gravesend in Kent, to check it out, to have a look, and I didn't see anything. And I think this is just my luck as a cryptozoologist. I'm sure he would have been there if there had been somebody else. <laughs> um, but it just shows you, actually, how hard it was to see this whale, how easy it is, even in a small body of water like the Thames, to, to find something that's just 16, 17, 17, you know, up to 20 feet long. You can't see it. No, it's not like Loch Ness or one of these deep lakes. It's not really deep easier to hide in but this is an air-breathing animal as well it's it's popping up now and again occasionally somebody gets a sighting gets a picture of its head or its back and, and that's it it's still with us as far as i know it's still there hasn't left huh i think we're going to see more and more of this with the uh, climate change hope i hope so <laughs> i mean they, they certain animals are going to need to start looking for alternative food sources in your areas where they wouldn't normally um, look for food. Oh yeah, but I would imagine that the Arctic would be much more plentiful than um, you know than the Thames. But I mean, I think this guy—he's obviously—he's of course he's found his way into the estuary. Seals are in there all the time. We have a seal population in the estuary. Mm -hmm. there. But, uh, he's found his way in. It's good feeding. If it's good enough for the seals, I'm sure it's good enough for him too. And sure. uh, it's a small, agile whale. And it's just adapted. And I think it's, it's fantastic. Really, really glad. And the locals have just accepted as their own. We had all kinds of things, like apparently they were going to cancel the fireworks celebration in London so they didn't scare the whale and all these different kinds of things. And um, Of course, that didn't happen. They did it anyway, and he's, he's still around. doesn't care. He loves fireworks. That's mm -hmm. awesome. <laughs> well... We've had you on here for over an hour now, 
and you're six yeah. hours, five hours or six hours ahead of us. Five. So, yeah, it's like yeah. one o'clock in the morning there or something like that, which I think the last time we talked to you, we had you on until three o'clock in the morning or was it four? It's I don't remember. Three. Yeah, we did till three. And the uh, conversation took a weird turn towards cowls. So- <laughs> <laughs> well, still have mine hanging up in the garage. <laughs> Well, I because of the whole Brexit thing, I haven't been able to get any imported, but um, you know, <laughs> hoping to get hold of a cow. Wait, wait, wait a minute! You, they they won't let you import cowls into your country. Well, no, because of the European trade agreements. So all of our cows originally came from um, Europe, uh, in Transylvania, and places like that. But um, uh, not anymore. What is Joking. Batman to do? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. My wife keeps telling me that when I make jokes, I should I should vary my tone a little at least, or at vary least sound like tone. serious. <laughs> Honey, people don't understand when you're trying to be funny. That's because they I'm don't. not funny. <laughs> exactly. That's what she's I just write it off as dry British humor. So Either. what she says to me is like, if you're going to make jokes, you should at least try to make them funny. <laughs> oh, that's wrong. Oh. I think it's what I think is really nice about it is that we have that kind of that direct relationship. Nobody's couching you here. Nobody's saying that's you're a good way to put it. Direct relationship. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I should start calling me and my wife's relationship. Exactly. We've never <laughs> had an awkward awesome. silence, you know. It's, um... <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's what you got working in the future. You've got another printing of books, uh, Beasts of Britain, coming out. Um, yeah, first yeah. edition was received very well. I'm, I'm assuming since you're out touring the world and stuff with it. Yeah, well, I mean, like uh, within the community, it was received very well. I think I only sold about 600 books, actually, but I've got no publisher. You know, I've got no promotion. It's just me basically talking to people mm-hmm. day in, day out. Uh, the next stage now is to do this podcast. And, and that was really because, you know, I'm planning to write all these extra things. And I thought there's a lot more information that I need to know. I need more research the best way to do that is to call all these guys up and interview them and then i'll know what they know um so my questions will probably be very primarily research based mm-hmm. <laughs> um but i i hope it's just going to be like a general you know general chitter chatter and you know, some like we do you know some family stuff some non-cryptid non-paranormal related things as well because life's more interested in that of course it is um yeah, and just getting on with things. But at the end of the year, Beast of North America, I should have finished it and it should be released for, for Christmas, for December. So that's the second one. So that's that's going to be coming out December if I get it finished in time. I'm looking forward to that. How many places do you plan on vi- visiting to research this stuff? Like when you came to America, did you actually research much stuff over here or were you just coming here to talk to people and do talks? Yeah, just to talk. I, I did uh, five days on Lake Champlain looking for champ uh, which was interesting um but i i didn't i think you need a good month at that location really to get into it and lake monster research is wonderful but it is like watching paint dry you know it's not like <laughs> when you walk into the forest so when I, for example when i went to loch ness recently there's a uh, a big walk that goes along the whole of the great glen that big fissure called the great glen way and the pond I was near was called Alt Nacreesh. It was a walk that went up to these huge pine trees into into the hills overlooking the loch. And it's sort of like a four-hour walk. And, um, you know, there's been Bigfoot sightings not too far, not too many miles away from that location. And um, 
I went up by myself. It's December, so there's no tourists. There's nobody on the walk. The elevation's about three, four hundred feet, you know, and it just goes up and up and up, and it gets really high. So I was walking through this forest, and um, it was quiet. I didn't hear a single bird, a single animal. I didn't see anything the whole time. It was really dark and you know, deep with these deep pine uh, trees at points. And I get to the top. I, I see the lock. It's beautiful. I get a bit further down in the path. The upper, upper path is, is blocked. They're doing some work there. And I saw a few felled trees over the path as well, fresh trees too. Apparently, there have been some high winds. But, you know, with my big foot head on, I was like, oh, maybe something's pushed this over. Then I'm coming down. I've got to go back, go back down the path of my two-hour descent on the other side. And it's all mossy and waterfalls and beautiful and these big moss-covered pine trees sticking up. And I get sort of, you know, like 100 feet down, and I'm photographing, you know, this angle, low down and looking up. And in the corner of my eye, I see somebody go behind a tree, like something, like a figure, and it was like a millisecond. And I'm thinking, come on, Andy, you know, you're up here looking for monsters, and then you're having this kind of corner of your eye kind of sighting. This is stupid. You're telling yourself that you saw something, so just ignore it. But I feel a bit uneasy. It's explainable. I'm by myself. Right, you know, I've been up there for you know the, the, at that point two and a half hours. I haven't seen another soul, I haven't heard anything. And then I come down and I'm going back to the forest again, um, the deeper forest. And I can hear like branches snapping and sort of things, movements, like something like an animal is moving around in the tree line somewhere. Not big, not small. I could just hear something. That's it. I'm starting to think. This is the question you always ask yourself. If you really were face-to-face with one of these things, would you want to be there? You know, you're out there searching for it, but you're not comprehending the reality of being by yourself in that situation, the creature that can tear your arms off. It's mm. <laughs> so, a good point. So, yeah, nobody ever thinks of that. Now, if you were out there in the middle of the night, or in the middle, you know, it was a deep, dark forest, it's just you. You know, it's a creature. It's got to make its own decision on what to do about you as you have it know what to do about it and can go either way and i don't see anything it's not exciting i wouldn't even class it as exciting other than i just freaked myself out and then became aware of animal noises or something was there i don't know but the isolation was amazing pristine and it just showed me okay you know um this is good habitat it's good habitat and it's um it's it's an example of how you can you can either miss a sighting or have an experience and not believe it or tell yourself you've had an experience that was not real. And sometimes these are the choices witnesses are facing in these very ambiguous situations. You know, I've been there. They don't, yeah, mm. yeah, I've been there. there. I know what that's like. How yep. is yours? Um, yeah, be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've had many. I've I've had a lot of different experiences and different kinds of things. Um, some of them I, I've become quite used to. Uh, the The most weird one, the most weird, the weirdest ones that I that I could not explain as hard, as try as hard as I could to explain. There's this uncomfortable moment that you realize you are seeing something that you cannot rationally explain away no matter what you do because it does something that completely defies any kind of logic and you're kind of stuck in this weird numbness for the most part. 
Um, and then you go through a period like for me, it was like, I need to tell as many people about this as I can right now. So I don't forget any of this. And very quickly, I regretted doing that. Um, within a period of like six hours, I, I immediately yeah. posted it on Facebook. I'm like, blah, 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 and I wanted it because I wanted that was I'm like, I need to put this on Facebook so I can have a place to keep a record of what happened. Yeah, yeah, sure. And within six or seven hours, I immediately pulled it right back down again. Um, and it was funny because people know that I do this show and they follow me on Facebook and stuff like that. And I was really surprised by the amount of. Oh, Rojan seeing little green men or, you know, the amount of, <laughs> of, of people that were kind of screwing with me. They were just yeah. having a good time with it. But yeah. for me, it was like, no, this this just happened. And I, I, I really don't want people laughing at me right now because it flipped me out so bad. But um, it's it's uncomfortable. It's a very strange place to be in. It's a there's, there's this weird moment yeah. of disconnect. That you're like, I mean, if it were to happen again, I, I would probably be much more level-headed about it, but I definitely uh -huh. would not tell anybody. I would definitely keep my mouth shut about it. I would document it for my own personal, for whatever reason or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I definitely, for damn sure, I'm not going to be like, I just saw a headless ghost run, run through my room or something like that. So you know? so here's the point on, on this whole thing, actually. And I, I talked to other researchers or people involved in this genre about the way they treat witnesses a lot. Oftentimes, the way um, the, the sort of uh, the reticence that somebody who's actually actively involved and committed to this genre will have in telling people about things they've seen is a sign of the kind of treatment that you'll get. And witnesses, who've, antagonistic witnesses, I call them, they've got no interest, you know, in the um, in the genre whatsoever. They just have an experience they can't forget. They often pay with their credibility when they come out with one of these things. So uh, a good example of that recently would be this Ricky D. Phillips uh, Nessie photo at the mouth of the River Oich or the, the Beakosaurus, as some of these people are calling it, it looks it's like a very beaky sort of face. I spent three days at that location after his sighting. I spoke to him. I got him to place with through photos exactly where it was. He's a military historian, num Amazon number one bestseller, military historian. He's down there. He's helping out. He's taking some tourists on a, a, a little bus. They go off on the boat. He's taking pictures for his book. And he gets a picture on Instagram. He takes it on Instagram because his phone's full, zooms in, gets it, clips it, puts it on Instagram. And all of the researchers are saying, why didn't he save the background? Why didn't he get one with the background? Why didn't he save the original? Oh, it sounds very dodgy that he only, you know, took it on his Instagram. And they're treating him like a researcher, right? <laughs> And, of course, you know, I'm talking to the guy initially, and as time goes on, as all of these comments are coming in, he's more and more reticent to talk to anybody. But then you can see he's already regretting telling anybody, going to the papers, publishing his sighting, because there's a penalty for it. And people think, these hoaxes, these fakers, that they become famous or they get lots of money. That doesn't happen. Maybe a newspaper pays you 200 pounds or something for your photo. That's it. And... You know, then you just get laughed at or it affects your career or your work or, or whatever happens. It happens to us guys in the genre, to those outside of it. The um um the you know, the uh the warnings against telling people about what you saw are very severe. You know, if it's not amongst your own colleagues and friends and family, you'll certainly receive it from people within the genre themselves. Who will, you know, see on these all these different pages that we go, who will just basically run you down? Say, oh, that doesn't sound right. It sounds like a fake to me, you know? 
because yeah. the guy said this or the guy said that or you know I'm just not feeling this when I feel it dodgy for some reason I always say to them why do you feel that and why should your feelings affect what the witness says you know it's um, you know witness plus photo actually is often uh, much worse than just witness report because then the photo, no photo scrutinized to- and the photo oh that's a fake photo Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So there, there's no like even I'm in the same way now. There's no like for UFOs. There's no evidence out there right now that no. I'm going to believe anymore because of the amount no. of manipulation. So even if you get me video or a photo, like even yeah. with what happened to me, I got a photo of it and then I deleted it. It was just a white dot in the middle of a bunch of blackness, and I'm like, yeah, no one's going to believe this. Delete it. You know, I'm like, look, look at my white dot. That's yeah, okay, dude. Exactly. You know, exactly. so. At this point, you know, because the we also I've gotten a lot of too from skeptics as well. I don't believe that you saw something, but I believe that you believe you saw something. And I've even yeah. said that myself a few frail times. Frail brain, to the whole frail brain excuse. Mm. Yeah, and it's like you know anymore. I just like I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I'm done. Yeah. I don't want to talk about it. So now when weird stuff happens to me, I just keep my mouth shut for the most part. Yeah, you know, yes. There's nothing. Well, there's to be two gained. ways to look at it um, uh, as well as that. Asking people to believe in these things, even when they know you and trust you. I mean, outside of the genre, it's a big ask. Yeah. So when I say to people, you know, there's 470 plus whatever British Bigfoot sightings now. You don't believe in that. Either. I say I, I, I'm not a believer in Bigfoot because I think you should either be a knower or a researcher. And if you don't know yet, you should keep researching. But I believe in the plausibility of it because of the um, diverse witness accounts that we have here and and their corroboration so that to me that's like evidence that they're seeing the same kind of thing whatever it is um i said but i realized that for you it's a big ask i'm not asking you to believe in it because why should you you're not a fool you've seen nothing to the contrary to tell you otherwise mm-hmm. it's just one of those things that you have to be cautious about otherwise you'd be believing everything everybody tells you it's too big a thing to ask about and um and there's things I don't believe in that people say as well, but I believe that they believe it. So, you know, I understand there's like a double standard here, but that's the world, you know, that's, um, we, we pick and choose. Yeah. I, yeah. I, every, everybody yeah. picks and chooses what, what their weirdness is and what they want to believe and what they don't want to believe. So, yeah, but you gotta, you gotta have an open mind, but not so open that your brain falls out. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's definitely a place for skepticism. It's just how you go about the skepticism that defines what you are. Yeah. Because um, you've got – it's weird because people like skeptics are like, well, I don't believe in religion. I don't believe in this. I don't believe in anything. But the problem is yeah. is their skepticism becomes a religion within itself. Oh, it yeah. It becomes the religion of, of disbelief. You know, it's – it's. Yeah. Well, disproving everything by any means possible, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a very religious thing to do, actually. Um, you know, yeah, to, it is to, completely to get, exactly. Now, I, um, uh, I didn't. I went to a church school, as they call it here, but I, I wasn't a Christian. I actually converted to Christianity when I was sixteen. I got baptized and everything, and I, I even went to um, university to become a priest. You know, and um, or a pastor, as they call it, the Baptist Church. I didn't end up becoming a pastor, um, but it was very interesting to study all of these things and. And find out about it and um you know i realize from that that people's belief is is very subjective now i wholeheartedly believe what i believe but you know marrying somebody from a different religion and also studying religions around the world 
you see that lots of people have um, have certainty in their belief, and that's in their practice. But that certainty, I think, mm. is often mm. in their character, in their um, confidence in what they believe. It's not always in direct experience, and experience can be mistaken anyway. You know, because you have like this, you know, divine light type of experience. Well, lots of people describe that in lots of different religions around the world. I think it'll be more of a head thing than a heart thing, you know? Um, so it's it's strange. It's hard to ask people to believe something that's contrary to something else that they believe because everybody's subjective, they're subject to their own uh, senses and experiences, right? And how they interpret them. Sorry, that was a bit mangled, but I'm just kind of saying <laughs> that um, you know, everybody's everybody's got their own take on things, and sometimes yeah. just being convinced isn't evidence enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, man. Well, we're gonna let you go. Yeah. I know it's later. So, uh, oh. yeah. Is there anything you want to promote or push or shove out there right now or anything? Just if you keep an eye on the um, Facebook.com forward slash beasts of. And on my book on the Amazon page, I say in February, there's going to be a piece of Britain map. It's coming out. It won't be too expensive. And a new uh, version of the piece of Britain book, more chapters, more pictures, and cheaper as well for people to buy. So and that's all coming up. Where are your cool. future plans to go and investigate or, or speak or anything like that? Do you have plans in the future to head any place else? Are you coming back to America? Um, I, I want to, but I won't be coming back this year. This year, I'm going to be speaking uh, about uh, African cryptids in Germany um, at the um, at one of the conferences there for the uh, Dare Cryptozoology Group. I think I'll be speaking with Michelle Ballow, who's been off to, uh, to search for Makali Mbembe in Congo and Cameroon for, I think, the last 20 years. And if you had that uh, Makali Mbembe guy, so I'm actually going to be talking about a creature I've never researched before alongside. <laughs> um, it's cool. I, I don't know why they invited me because these guys are experts. They've been there. But my whole take on it is going to be about sort of like colonial, the colonial mindset and on accepting uh, ethno-known reports, uh, reports of ethno-known creatures from natives, you know, that we've um, historically perceived as being superstitious or imaginative or, or liars, actually, in a way. Um and it's going to be from that angle, you know, how do we interpret their reports? And is there some sort of historic academic bias against these very plain things that they're telling us about what they're seeing that makes us exclude it from our, you know, from a reasonable inquiry. So anyway, again, I'm all mangled and schmangled at 1.30 in the morning, but I'm going to be speaking there and, and somewhere in England, but nowhere in the U.S. this year, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, my friends, safe travels. Yeah. I suppose yes. we will uh, bug you in a year at another four o'clock in the morning meeting of some kind or another. <laughs> well, let's make it later next time. This is <laughs> awesome. Okay. Listen, guys, thank you so much. Um, yeah, and, um, and enjoy 2019, a very successful 2019 to you both. Thank Hopefully, you so much. Same to you. Thank you so much. I'd say that was a pretty successful broadcast. Want to get in contact with the show or listen to back episodes? It's easy. Go to www.projectarchivist.com. On the right side of the page, you'll find links to our archives, as well as links on how to get onto our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. If you want to leave a voicemail for us, it's 734-681-0459. Yes, we do listen to all of them. 
or if you want to talk to Lobo directly, you can call 203-212-9975. Yes, that will in fact put you in touch with his cell phone. If he's available, he will take your call and talk to you. If you're just looking to send us an email, you can do that at projectarchivist at gmail.com. Don't forget to look for us on iTunes under the podcast section, or you can stream us right to your phone with the Stitcher Android app for free. Andy! So the return of Andy McGrath, who's always a very nice, proper English kind of dry humor guy. He's Um, hilarious. He's absolutely hilarious. He is a funny guy. He's really cool. But he's going to be doing his own podcast now, and I'm going to be helping him out from behind the scenes from what it sounds Mm -hmm. like. Can't wait. Yeah. um, I don't know what we're doing next week or if we're going to have a show. We probably will, but I have no guests booked or anything like that because I started a new job this week, so... My schedule is kind of settling into place as to what days I'm going to be working and what I'm going to be doing. Um, actually, a listener of the show got me the job, and it's a far better job than what I had. I have to say that. Mm-hmm. It was like, hmm, do I do this or do I continue what I do? It seems like every four years I'm in a career change of some kind or another uh, or in surgery. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Jesus. So what what have I had now? I've had the, the, the plate put in my wrist. I've had the hernia yep. surgery, and I've had my left knee rebuilt. Yep. So, and I have two more that I'm supposed to have done. They want to take a drill and drill out the inside of my sinuses because I have a deviated septum of something. That's fun. Yeah. Well, it affects yeah, I have me. A deviated septum too. They're not touching my face. Yeah. Well, my my father-in-law had it done, and there was somebody else that listens or used to listen to the show that had it done, and it just looks like you have a huge black nose for about a week. But apparently after it's done, you can breathe and it affects the way I do the show because it affects the way that I talk. Like I'll say mm-hmm. something and then I'll have to like really quickly inhale because I, I, for whatever reason, I just can't breathe through my nose when I'm doing the show. It's weird. So I become a creepy, quote, mouth breather. But uh, <laughs> well, anyways, um, I did the episode of This Week in Fecal Matters on the uh, Jake and Tom Rule the World podcast or Jake and Tom mm-hmm. Conquer the World. That was I had to bow out. Interesting. I was in another town. It was interesting. I covered a lot of the stuff that, well, not a lot, but we t- we covered some stuff that we've covered on here, like the woman in Tim Hortons, who uh, oh, that took a shit on the floor. Yeah, we covered that one, and I covered the one that started it all for us, which was the Dave Matthews Band, or the guy. Oh Dream. my god. Yeah, I covered that. We covered a few off and off on things, and then uh, there was one we were going to cover last week in Michigan. A truck carrying human waste tipped over on I seventy five. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> yeah, and covered the freeway completely. And my response was, "Well, our roads in Michigan are shitty, anyways." So there you go. And that there's like. Three ways out of Michigan. You got I seventy five south. Uh, you've got another one in the middle of Michigan, and on the other side of Michigan, you got another route out of Michigan. But those are the three main freeways. So if you mess, and they're they're all considerable distance apart from one another. So if you mess up one and shut it down, you block up things really bad for quite a while. <laughs> Yay! Are we winning yet? No. But uh, anyways, yeah, so I, I did that show, and it was a lot of fun, and they, they really, really, truly enjoyed me being on there. They, they, it was a field day for them, and I was like, all right, yeah, I'll roll with this, whatever. And uh, I told them the same thing. I'm like, the, the reason we quit doing the show is because it was affecting our ability to get guests on the show. So are you guys sure you want to do this? And they were a stunt, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and then uh, Tom just messaged me a little bit ago saying he's in the middle of editing it, and he's having a hard time doing it apparently because he's laughing so much or something. I don't That's know. That's awesome. So – awesome. uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Straight. And uh, maybe we'll see you guys next week. If not, maybe we'll take next week off and play a best of or something like that. Because I haven't booked any guests lately. I just haven't felt like it. And I've been reading stuff. Oh, 
Adam and Greg, did you listen to the second part of the interview with Adam and Greg yet? No, I haven't had a chance to yet. My my physical copy of the book came in. This thing's about an inch thick. It's huge. Oh, shit. Yeah, this book's like 26 bucks. So if you're hearing this and you're on the fence about buying that book, buy it. Just for financial value money alone it was like 26 bucks for this book if you buy it it's huge it's a massive big ass book which i love it when our authors put big ass books full of information for really cheap i bought a dungeons and dragons book last night which is a quarter of the size for 40 dollars <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. i'm like this this book is like i you know i paid over over twice the amount of money for a Dungeons and Dragons book as compared to this thing would have cost me twenty six dollars and it's way bigger and it's got way more information and cooler stuff in it, but yeah it's got Adam and Greg's signature on it and when I opened it like when when I got the envelope it's got the stuff like the yellow envelope and it's got a, like the address tape to it and underneath it, it there was what looks like a pubic hair under the tape, um, uh. could be beard, <laughs> could be That's beard not hair. Cool. But uh, I was like, yeah, I got the book from you guys complete with pubic hair. And Adam was like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's hilarious. So I'm like, why didn't you can't physically touch it because it's underneath the tape. Thank God. But uh, I, I was like, do I do I actually keep a, do I actually keep this so I, I can be like, look, look, here's a piece of here's Adam go rightly's uh, pubic hair. But, you know, that would have been weird. So, <laughs> um, all right, we're going to call it good. And I'm going to let everybody go because I'm beginning to babble and I'm very, very cold and tired. So this is Rojan. Peace out from the D. Lobo, this is where you say something off the wall and weird. This is Lobo from Connecticut. If you're in New York City, just know that pretty soon every single hot dog cart will have a rating and you'll know how sanitary it is. Thank you, Useless Laws. Delicious hot dogs. I thought it was already like that. Nope. So how are they they going to enforce that? Because there's a lot of hot dog carts in New York. Okay, hold on a second. I, I knew you were going to ask. Hold on a second. And derail the show always with something off the wall at the end of it. Because, I've, you know, I've been to New York. There's food vendors everywhere there. Okay. You ready? Yeah. New York City wants you to know how sanitary your food, your favorite hot dog stand is. Okay, I'm okay with will that. Your, will your favorite hot dog stand get an A? New York City's iconic food carts are starting to get health department letter grades, giving on-the-go workers and tourists alike a quick reference for cleanliness and safety. The city's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene handed out the first batch of grades Friday to about two dozen of the city's more than 5,000 food carts and trucks. They're the same style placards that are that have been commonplace at restaurants, coffee shops, and other establishments around the Big Apple for about a decade. Yeah. The city has always inspected food carts and flagged violations. The new report cards are the result of a law passed last June. The city says experts... Expect to have all carts and trucks graded within two years. The grading system, according to a bulletin of New York City's Health Department's website, is a points-based one where each violation counts for a different number of points based on the risk of public health. For an A grade, vendors receive a maximum of 13 points against them, while a C grade has anything up to 27 points. The sanitation of food carts and trucks in New York and other cities have been closer for years and is often rated better than carts reputation would lead you to believe in boston traditional brick and mortar restaurants were more likely to be cited for health violations than food trucks according to the boston globe there you go huh yeah i know they're pretty strict about it up here in michigan yeah so that dude if there's I ever, nothing like a dirty water dog dude i love them if i ever started another business up again i've i've often thought about doing a food truck dude they're hard food trucks are hard yeah you gotta have you can something. make a killing on a yeah, lot of hours. 
but the problem is your weekends are booked at events and stuff like that. Like oh, if yeah, it's absolutely. summertime, your your weekends are done. You know, yep. that's it. That's it. It's like oh. you make a killing. Man. Yeah, but man, I don't know. I've always wanted to do like a pizza one, some kind of a pizza truck. Do a poutine truck. Oh, pizza and have poutine. One here. I would. You know what? I would probably just do stoner foods. I would do stoner oriented foods in a food truck. Because now that we've got weed legalized in Michigan. Oreos. Oh, the triple stuff ones that we had on the webpage, the Facebook page, the gigantic ones. They're sold out. I drove to freaking Newington to find them and they were sold out already. I haven't even seen them here. Oh, haven't even seen them. I'm not really sure I want to. No, I want them. I will have them. uh, Plain Oreos. I'm not a plain Oreo kind of guy. I love Oreos. So I haven't seen any of the exotic new flavors out either to where I've been like, hey, we should go out and try these. What was the last one that came out that we said? What was it? I don't remember. Blueberry, isn't it? No, there was some flavor that we posted because even off it responded to it. I don't remember what it was. Oh, it was the carrot cake ones. Oh, no. Fuck that, dude. Carrot Carrot cake cake sucks. Not for me. Not for me. I wish they just sold the cream. If I could just buy the cream. That's you need to buy the giant ones that just came out that are they're a monster. You know, I I want those. That's what I went looking for. The store that I went on the website, it said that the store is, I don't know. Let me think. It's 25 minute, 20 minute drive from here. I went to go visit my wife where she works and made a detour specifically to go to that. And they were none left. I walked up to a stock guy. He put the number in. He said they were sold out. Dude, I want a tub of cream. Just Oreo I cream. Eat that with a spoon. Oh, my God. All right, Diabetes. We're, done. We're, done. we're out. <laughs> we're done, folks. We'll see you again. I don't know how Bye. soon, but we'll see you again. Diabetes and all. I don't know. Peace. <laughs> Holding on when my brain's ticking like a bomb. Guess the black dogs have come again to get me. Sweet bitter words, unlike nothing I've heard. Sing along, knocking bird, you don't affect me.
So the whole backdrop to what I'm doing, it's like me in the playpen with these animals in the back. So they're, they're doing great. They're getting on well. I get this vision they of love... you sitting in a playpen with a diaper on. I don't know why. No, I mean, I'm already bald. The diaper look, it's too, um, <laughs> it's, it's regressive. It's not regressive. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Bald guys. We always end up the way we started, don't we? So. Well, you come in the world shitting yourself, you leave the world doing the same damn thing. I've just carried on throughout, personally. That's it. <laughs> Lean into it. Lean in. Lean in. Accept. Accept your fate. 